You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're in a uh, small vision series over the the next two weeks. This week and next week we'll conclude it. Vision series on who we are as a church. It's good to re-up our our vision every year to talk about who we are as a community, what we're we're here to do. Last week we said this. We said we are a community following Jesus, if you remember that. We are, as a church, this is kind of our vision tagline if you if, if uh, you want to call it that, we are a community in, in San Francisco, in, in, in the Bay Area, that's following Jesus. So last week we talked about the following Jesus part of this vision. We are a community of people, yes, but we're a community of people that are following Jesus. And what does that entail? What does following Jesus look like? And we said, it means this narrow gate and this narrow road. This is what we said last week. That when we follow Jesus, it starts with a narrow gate. Another way Mark puts it is, uh, denying yourself and taking up your cross. So denying yourself and taking up your cross and narrow gate are kind of the same thing we said last week. It's like to follow Jesus, it starts with a, this, a narrow gate you go into. And, and there's many gates, and Jesus says this is the, the true gate, the only gate that you go into for salvation. Another way he says it in Mark is take up your cross, deny yourself. But then once we're, we, we begin to follow Jesus, there is a road that we are to walk. And then uh, Jesus says in, in Matthew that it is a narrow road. Not only is it a narrow gate, but it's a narrow road. Later on in Mark, he says it's follow me. Following Jesus means a continuing determination of staying a chosen course or chosen path. So not only are we a community that has chosen to follow Christ, but we keep following Christ. And that's what we talked about last week. This week, I want to talk about the community part Following Jesus in community is what we'll talk about today. So it's just the same sort of thing, a little play on words, just going to move those words around, word jumble today. Uh, we're, a, we're, we're a community following Jesus, but today I want to talk about following Jesus in community. So turn to Acts chapter 2, and let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this community. Um, as we're looking back tomorrow night on the last year of your faithfulness, I, I often reflect on the last four or five years of your faithfulness. To this church, that uh, one day there wasn't a reality, San Francisco, and then, and then one day you said, "Let there be," and there was, and that's just—it's a miracle, God. And I find myself standing here um, week after week, just thanking you for what you're doing, hearing the stories of lives that are living out the gospel in community and in mission, this city. It's beautiful. And so, God, I pray that you would, uh, that today it would be a teaching in the sense that you, that you reform our minds uh, around your truth, but it also be this, this heart thing where it, it gets into our heart in a way we, we change the way that we live, that we actually are, are confronted with our own maybe selfishness, that we're confronted with our own junk, our own stuff, and you would confront those things and bring us into true life and true peace. And so we ask for faith to receive your word. We love you. Pray that you would anoint me and use me um, now as they stand before your church and, uh, and preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is where I want to start. I want you to start, I want to start by you, you, look, you thinking about this word salvation and what salvation means. 
What does salvation mean? When you think about this word salvation, what comes to mind? What does it mean to be saved? And this is a, a word that the church uses for what Christians are or what has been done to them. They, they've been saved. And when we think of salvation, a lot of times we think of salvation in terms of what we're saved from. Like you're saved. Now explain that. Well, I'm saved from. That's kind of what we think of first. Well, I'm saved from the, the bondage of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin. I'm saved from death. I'm saved from hell. I'm saved from myself. I'm saved from these things. God saved me from these things. And we think of salvation in terms of what we're saved from. When we think about it even personally, what we're saved from, we think about it in terms of like, well, I've been saved from a bad relationship. I've been saved from a bad or a bad situation or I've been saved from a, a life-threatening illness or pain in my body. I've been saved from losing my job. So when we think of salvation, a lot of times we think of it of what we're saved from. Like, oh, I was going to go into this, this road, down this road of destruction or whatever, but I've been saved from it. And so we think of, of salvation in terms of what we're saved from. But we don't spend too much time thinking about what we're saved to. Not just what we're saved from, but what are we saved into? We know that we've been saved from sin and from death and from hell. A lot of us have been saved from bad situations in our life, from past failures, past things done to us. But what are we saved into? What if being saved from something actually was more about what we're saved into? What if being saved from something was actually more about what we're saved into and not so much about what we're saved from, though that is important, but what we're saved into? And if we're saved from something and into something, what is that something that you and I are saved into? What are we saved for? I think if we were to give a general answer, like, what is the church saved for? I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I go to church on a Sunday. I'm a part of the church life, and I'm saved for What? I'm safe for heaven. And one day, God's going to come get me. And that's kind of the extent of it. Or we might say, say this, I am saved for or to have a personal relationship with God. I'm saved so I can have a personal relationship with God. And that sounds good, and it's kind of right, but it's not completely right. Salvation is not just about you and God. Salvation is not just about you and God. Salvation isn't just about what God has done for you and then he saved me and now it's just me and God living in this personal relationship with him forever and ever and ever and I have this peace that passes all understanding so that him and I could connect and have all this fun time together. If that were the case, if God saved you for a relationship just with him, if that was the case, then if you ever came across Somewhere in Scripture, or somewhere in the Bible, where God was with one person alone in perfection, you would hear something like, and this is the way it was supposed to be. If you ever came across a Scripture where it was just God and some other person in perfection, you would read that and you would expect, if God has saved just, just so it's just me and God, if that was the case, if that's what God saved us for, then when you find that in Scripture, you would expect to hear the words, and this is what it's all about. But we don't hear that. We're actually given a case of 
someone alone with God in perfection. And God does not say, oh, this is what it's all about. What does he say? This is not good. It's actually found in the book of Genesis. Chapter 2, verse 18, it says this. This is what we hear when God is alone with Adam and it's all perfect. And it's just Adam and God, Adam and God, that's no one else. All I need is me and God. That's all I want in my life, just me and God, just my relationship with God. It's all, that, it's, it's all about that. And God's like, ah, oh, this is not good. You're like, Adam's like, what? Not good. Like, it's just like me and you. And this is like beautiful. And the animals and the sea and everything's in harmony. This is good. And God's like, this is not good. Now, if you're reading Genesis maybe for the first time, maybe you've never read it. Or you started reading it. January 1st, like everyone else does. And you're reading this, and you get to chapter 2, and you see that this is not good for man to be alone. You would think, whoa, this should shock you. This should um, call your attention to this because the prose of Genesis goes something like this. And God said it, and it, it was, and it was good. And the poetry continues. God said it, it was, and it was good. God said it, it was, and it was good. God said it, it was, and it was good. Over and over and over again. And that's the prose. And then God said it, it was, and it was not good. And you would go, wait, what? God said it, it was, it was good. Why is this not good? It's not good that Adam is alone. Why not? Now, first off, you're probably thinking, well, this is all about marriage. So this is the marriage thing, and everyone that's not married is depressed in here. Like, great, thank you very much for that. But I don't think the first application is marriage. I don't believe that when God said it's not good for man to be alone, he was first talking about marriage. I think marriage is a great application of this verse, but I think the first application was community. I believe the first application was community, and here's why I think that. This is why I believe that. In chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26... When God decides to make humanity, he says, let us make mankind. That word man is mankind, humanity. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, our. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about like the other animals? No, he's not because we're not made in the image of animals. Was he talking about, was he talking with the birds? No, he's not talking about, he's talking about with himself. Man was created in the image of God and God is a community. God is a triunity. It's the doctrine of the Trinity that will be developed later on in the scope of Scripture. God is in loving community with himself. Therefore, man can't reflect a triune God alone. Man cannot reflect alone what is a unity. So if God was saying, I'm going to create you, Adam, in my likeness, and I am a unity, I am a community, and you cannot be a community by yourself. Some of you introverts say, yeah, I can. No, you can't. You cannot be a unity by yourself. And so you need, so God says, I will, I will make someone for you. That word helper in there, you're like, well, he makes a helper. In, in, the, in the Old Testament, that word helper is someone stronger. When we need help, we go, God, be my helper. We're not saying, God, be my servant. Come down below me and or like, God, you can do something that I cannot do. So if you read that, well, God made Eve and as, a, as a helper, as like a slave. No, no. As someone stronger. And all the women said, that's right. <laughs> I won't get into that. That's a whole different sermon. Anyways. The second reason why I believe this is about community is because Jesus, and not necessarily about marriage, is that Jesus, the perfect man, was single. 
Jesus, the perfect man, was single, meaning not married. That's what I mean by that. But he had a community. So, salvation is not just about you and God. Salvation actually encompasses a lot more than that. Look at what Joseph uh, Hellerman says in his book on the church, on the church as being a family. He says, the idea of salvation cannot be reduced to a personal relationship with Jesus. God's plan is much more encompassing. God intends for salvation to be a community-creating event. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Salvation is a community-creating event. Once you're saved into God, if, once you're saved by God, you're saved from this, and you're saved to God's community. You're saved to God's family. So back to our original question. What if the point of salvation wasn't as much about what we're saved from, but what we're saved to? What if the point of salvation was to bring us into something else? What is that something else? Well, Acts chapter 2. We see the birth of a new community. This is the birth of a brand new community, the family of God. And the family of God is made up of all these different tribes and tongues and nations and socioeconomic background and races. All these, and they're now the family of God. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. So if you're there now, in, in, in the first part it says, uh, when the day of Pentecost came. So the, the background here is Pentecost. Pentecost is a Jewish pilgrimage feast. When all the Jews were required to Jerusalem, required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of harvest. So they were all there. It was Jerusalem was packed with people. Now remember, again, a little background if you've not read Acts. Right before chapter 2, Jesus meets with his disciples after the resurrection and says, guys, I know that I'm going to entrust to you guys the gospel and you guys are going to share that with the world, but you need to wait in Jerusalem for a while. You're going to wait in Jerusalem because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will give you the power to be my witnesses. So wait in Jerusalem. It's no accident that Jesus had the disciples wait in Jerusalem because the feast was coming up and, the, and Jerusalem would once again get packed with people from all over the world that spoke different tongues and different languages. And it was on that day during Pentecost that God decided that's when the Holy Spirit would fall and the Holy Spirit came upon those people that were all together one place and then God united their speech. How he did that was this. There were these tongues of fire that came up. You can read this yourself in chapter 2. Tongues of fire came upon everyone, and they spoke in tongues, meaning they spoke in languages that they didn't, they didn't previously know. We talked a little bit about this in 1 Corinthians in our study. And as they were speaking in tongues, all of a sudden there's this huge commotion because there was wind that was blowing around everywhere, and all these people rushed to what was happening there. We don't know where it was. It could have been the upper room. It could have been somewhere. But it was somewhere kind of public because everyone came in, and then people from all over the world were gathered around, and they said, I'm hearing the praises of God, but you don't know my language, but you're speaking it in my language. Like, I speak Hebrew, and, you're speak, and you speak Greek, but you don't speak my language, but you're saying it in Hebrew. You speak Spanish, and I speak English, but you're, singing, you're saying it in Spanish, but I, don't even know, I, don't, I didn't even know you knew Spanish, and you didn't. It was that sort of thing. And what was happening, this is such... A beautiful moment in the church because what was happening was God was reversing what happened during the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, God confused people's speech 
And these were because the people were, when, when, when the Tower of Babel was going on, they were trying to make a name for themselves and God confused their speech and they became divided. They became people who warred against one another. They became non-communicative. Everyone was serving the God of their choice. Most every community around is, are really communities of affinity groups that war against each other even today. We have Democrats and Republicans and Green Party and they fight against each other. We have Mac and PC and they fight against each other. <laughs> you have tech and blue collar workers and they're sometimes even recently fighting against each other. You have these different affinity groups and there's silly fighting like we see in Mac and TV and Mac and PC commercials and then there's serious fighting going on all over our world today and they're a fight between affinity groups. And then what happens in Acts chapter 2 is that the Holy Spirit comes and makes people one. He gives them the same language. He brings unity. And then people don't know what's going on. People are like, these guys here are all drunk. And so Peter goes, I better preach a sermon right now because they think I'm drunk. So he stands up, he's like, and he starts the sermon probably the best way ever. He says, we're not drunk, it's 9 a.m. We haven't even gotten started yet, but we're not drunk. And then he starts to preach a sermon about Jesus and who Christ is and what they've done to him by crucifying him. But God raised him from the dead and God has, has, has made him Lord and Christ. And every knee should bow to this. And so at the end of the sermon, they look at verse 36. At the end of the sermon, Peter concludes it like this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What, what do we do? They, I mean, Peter preached a beautiful sermon that had the people right at the edge of their seats going, What do I do then? What do we do about this? Christ, who has, who has given us his Holy Spirit, this Christ who we crucified, but God made Lord and Messiah. What do we do? And Peter says this. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off and all who the Lord will call. Verse 40. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Did you see in that in, in verse 40, 41, do you see salvation there? Do you see the from and to there? Look again. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves. Not save yourselves in the, in, in the way that you think is like, I can save myself. But make this personal. From what? From a, from this corrupt generation to their number. So notice a couple things here. First, notice this. Salvation is personal. So there is, there is something that has to happen to your person. Save yourself. Each individual must be saved by an act of personal repentance, turning to Jesus, having placed your faith in his work. But what's surprising next is what we don't see. Go back to that slide one more time. What we don't see here is once they're saved and they're, and they're brought into relationship of God, 
It's not about their individuality. It's not about them being saved personally. We don't see being saved to simply enjoy personal relationship with God. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. According to the first account of the birth of the church, Luke is concerned to highlight something else entirely. This is what he's looking at to highlight. It's personal for the first, but we're saved from something. Salvation is from something. And then lastly, salvation is to something. So this is, this is, this is what Peter or, or Luke, who's, who's writing Acts, is excited to share. He's not, he didn't say this. He didn't say, oh my gosh, what happened when the Holy Spirit came and, and Peter preached? He's not excited to tell everyone else that 3,000 individual lives were saved and then there's 3,000 individual Christians that are spread all across the world. He was not excited to share that. What, what gave Luke, who's the author, passion about this, what opened his eyes and opened his heart was this. It was, and 3,000 souls were added to the family of God that day. So if 3,000 people got saved, when you walk away, you're like, 3,000 people got saved, and there are 3,000 Christians all over San Francisco, or 3,000 people were added to the family of God. See, salvation is from something, and salvation is to something. Salvation is from, in the words here of, of Peter, when he's preaching this, salvation is from this corrupt generation. There is a, there's a group that we're a part of when we're not following Jesus. It's a corrupt generation. But we're saved from that, but we're also saved into the family of God. Salvation is not just about you and God. Salvation is not just about your personal walk with God. Salvation creates community. Salvation actually, or another way to say it, salvation recreates community. And the reason why it recreates community is because of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. We're created for community. Salvation recreates that because it brings you in a true family of God. Not just that, but the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. What is happening in in Acts chapter 2 is God is making a new community. And what is so beautiful about Acts 2 is not that at the end of it, 3,000 individual souls were saved, but that 3,000 were made a part of God's family. And that's why it says 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. Now, here's how that is proven in the very next verse. Look at, look at verse 42. So 3,000 souls were added to the family that day. The 3,000 souls that are brought into the, the community of God that day. It's like as soon as someone, uh, think of it this way, before we move on, think of it like this. Imagine someone today turns their life and surrenders their life, their soul, their future, their past, everything to Christ. Because we live in a very individualistic sort of society, I would probably, my proclivity would be go, you're saved. Gosh, that's so cool. Instead of going, you are now into this family and we have complete obligation and responsibility for your life. That's what's happening here. 3,000 souls were saved and they were brought into the family of God. And what did this 3,000 new family do? 3,000 people. I think about the size of our church and as it's growing, and I, it, it, 
it boggles my mind to go, how do we all devote? But this is what they did. 3,000 new people added to the family of God, and this is what it says they did. They devoted themselves. They devoted. This is what this new family did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common, They sold property and possessions to to give to everyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what happens when you get saved? What happens when you are renewed by Christ? Is that you are saved from something and you are saved into something. Paul talks about the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. He says, you have been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. So you've been transferred from a domain, a, a territory of darkness, and then you've been brought in to this kingdom of light. That means you were, you were, brought, you were saved from something and you are brought into this family. Later on in Ephesians 2, he says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You know what you are now? You're members of God's household. You were this, but you've been saved from this. Now you're brought into God's household. First Peter talks about, he, he, in First Peter chapter 1, he uses the word father and how we have a, a new father now. And then we inherited something from our ancestors, which was a life of, of vanity and death. But now we have this new family. And the reason how we got into this new family was by being born anew. So when you're born, you're born into a family. And Peter says, you're actually born again. That's where that language comes from, being born again. You're born again. And a lot of people go, I'm born again. Me, myself, I'm born again. No, no. That means you have a new family. You're born into a new family. You are saved from all of these things, but you and I are saved to the family of God. And the way that the family of God is to act and to interact is exactly what is said here in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves. Now, if you take notes, I don't know if you take notes or if you find it okay to write physically in your Bible or highlight in your Bible app or whatever you do, but just would you do me a favor and write devoted somewhere? Write it on your, if you take notes to remember things, devoted. If you write in your Bible, circle devoted. If you have your Bible app open, highlight devoted. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. This devotion modifies everything else we read in the text. This devotion modifies everything else. So when it says that they, they were in fellowship, they weren't just in fellowship. What did they do? They, they what? Devoted themselves to fellowship. Okay, so there's fellowship like, um, oh, yeah, yeah, I go to community group sometimes. And then there's like devotion to fellowship. Meaning we're together and whenever there's a need that comes up, we are, we are connected. I've devoted my life to this group of people. They didn't just listen to teachings, they devoted themselves to teachings, to listen to the apostles' teachings. They didn't just go to communion, they devoted themselves to communion. See, devotion qualifies and modifies everything else. They didn't just have church. They devoted themselves to one another. So when it says that they had everything in common and they sold their property because the reason why they sold their property and gave to each other because they were devoted to each other. 
The reason why we wouldn't sell our property and give it to one another because we're not devoted to each other. We're devoted to our rent and our house payment and our stuff. And I'm, and I, I'm, I'll be the first person to confess that. If no one else in this room wants to confess it, I will. Because I live in San Francisco and I live in America just like probably all of you. And I know that I'm incredibly individualistic. And a devotion to the family of God means, if it means I sell something to give something to someone who has less than me or needs something, then I will do it because I'm devoted to this thing. And when it says fellowship, it's not I'll fellowship when, I, when, I, when my schedule gets better and I'll fellowship whenever like, my work calms down and I'll fellowship when I have more time. It's like, no, that I will devote myself to that. I will devote myself to each other. Now, I will say this. If, you, if you're here this morning and, you, and you're not devoted to a group of believers in here, you're not devoted to a group of believers, we, uh, we have a, I, and I say this loosely, a program. Community groups in our church are not a program. They're really, our church is a church of communities. But if you're not involved and devoted to a group of believers, you're not in the church. You may attend church. I don't mean to make you feel really guilty and bad, but I'm just telling you the truth. You attend church on a Sunday sometimes. I can't wait to get the demographic survey back, maybe twice a month on average. Most of us, on twice a month on average, we go to church. We attend church, but are you devoted, not to the church as an as a establishment, but to the, to the church as a people. I'm devoted to this group of people. I'm devoted to them. That word is as intense as it is intentional. That word modifies everything else. They didn't just eat bread together. They devoted themselves to eating bread. They didn't just pray. They devoted themselves to praying together. They didn't just meet together in temple courts. They devoted themselves to meet together in temple courts. Let me ask you, what are you devoted to? What gets your time, like most of your time? What gets your resources, your money? What gets your dreams, like your daydreams? That's what you're devoted to. And for the family of God, the thing that we are to be devoted to is God's people, God's family. That's what we are to be devoted to. And this is the reason why I think a lot of the church in America today has really no voice in culture at all. I mean, we say something and we're just like, you guys, whatever, you guys are just a bunch of hypocrites that are. But if, you were, if we were a church that was like intentional and like really doing this, like we're just, we'd do this. And we devote ourselves to one another. And we care for one another. And there's not any single person in our church that has a need. And if they do, we meet it. And that means sacrificing our own stuff, we'll do it. That's like such a high, lofty, scary thing. I mean, for most of us, it would probably cut this church right in half. And half of you would walk away and go, I can't do that. I'm way too busy. But this is what we're saved into. If you've just regu- uh, regulated your, your Christianity to be this individualistic, I'm saved type thing, you're missing the beauty. And the, actually, the, the, all the, pretty much all the New Testament scriptures have to say about what salvation is. It's being brought into this new family. 
that we would be devoted to one another this way. Faith in Jesus is not an addition to our individualistic life. Faith in Jesus is a reframing of life itself. It reframes everything that you believe. If we're, if we're saved from brokenness and death and bondage to sin, then we are saved into God's family. And this means that God's family, God's community is more important than your career. Listen to that. I mean, there was one amen. I wish there was <laughs> 1,300 amens. But gosh, that is such a challenging thing. The family of God, and please hear, I don't necessarily mean reality San Francisco. So if you're like super guilty right now, because you're like, oh my gosh, I had to move away in, you know, a, a year. <laughs> um, but the family of God. You're more devoted to the family of God than you are to your career. And it's more important to you than your career. More important to you than your bank account. More important to you than you. The two greatest commandments are to love God and love one another. And those two things are so combined that you can't pull them apart. And John says in 1 John, if you try to pull them apart, you lose them both. Who can say they love God whom they do not see and hate their brother who they do see? I love God, but I don't see him. But my brother and sisters in Christ, I don't really love them, but I can see them and I can see their needs. Quote from a book called Everyday Church on the church and mission. It's a a great book. Um, The writers say this. The Christian community is not a happy byproduct of our salvation. We have been saved to be God's holy people, to be Christ's bride, to be a new family. We often understand in very very personal terms that Jesus died for us on the cross and celebrate this with songs uh, littered with singular pronouns. And the gospel is certainly... Not less than this. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, says Paul in Galatians 2.20. But the gospel is much more than this. Christ died for his people. Christ died so he can present his bride to himself, radiant and pure. He died so he can be the second Adam, creating a new humanity that is righteous in him. Becoming a Christian is not simply a change of mind or lifestyle. It is about being born again into a new race. Becoming a Christian is being born again into a whole new race where every tribe and tongue and socioeconomic background and every past and every, every thing that we, we bring into it and we're a brand new people group. So this is what I want to leave you with. First, a, 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 a bit of an observation. Have you noticed how communally obsessed San Francisco is? how beautifully communally obsessed San Francisco is. Marginalized communities from all over the globe come to San Francisco to find haven. I just, I, I, I read a book recently called The Season of the Witch, uh, Not for the Faint of Heart, if you want to read this book by David Talbot, who founded Salon.com. On the history of San Francisco, especially in the 60s through the 80s, dark book, very, very dark, heavy book, But it talks about, basically the whole book is about the clashing of communities. Communities fighting in San Francisco within themselves and us trying to fight to be one big San Francisco community. (laughs) The whole point of the book is that the 49ers do it, by the way. 
so I'll just give that away right now. <laughs> I cried at the end. It was awesome. Anyway. <laughs> and I'm not joking. Seriously, read the book. Um, or at least the end. So the, the whole thing are all these communities that are clashing, competing, and how the whole city changed in the 60s when the, all these people moved into, these young people moved into San Francisco to live communally differently, different lives than the rest of America. And they lived in communes. And basically our city doing that over and over again with different communities and these communities fighting and how the city hated those people when they moved in. And they made their place here, but then there was infighting and communities infighting and, out, and other communities warring against one another. Basically our, our city is one big social experiment in a melting pot of competing communities. And we've seen that recently with the, that tech article that came out about two months ago on how technology, there's technology communal homes now that are popping up all over our city. Our city loves community. That is the observation. Here's the invitation. Let us devote ourselves to being the kind of community that is a preview of what is to come. Let us church, devote ourselves to becoming the kind of community in San Francisco that is a preview of coming attractions. Jesus Christ will one day make all things new. He will one day make everything. He will restore everything. He will bring ultimate shalom. He will bring ultimate peace. The vision of the church is that we should be a preview of that here on earth today. If one day God is going to make all things new, let's be a community that embodies this newness. If one day God is going to bring peace, peace with how we interact and love each other, peace with the way that we live in our environment, peace with other, let's live that way now. If one day we're going to get along so much so where there is no, there is no differences that keep us from loving one another, let's live that sort of community now. This is going to take, this is going to take denial and devotion. This is going to take a denial of self. Because to live into a community means you have to deny yourself. It doesn't mean you lose your individuality. It means you deny yourself and you prefer the other. This is so hard. The second thing is that we're devoted to the family of God. That we're really devoted to it. One of the simple ways that this looks like is, I know a lot of community groups, we call them community groups, basically where our church embodies and lives out the family of God. Be devoted to that. And go in there with this understanding that I'm going to be devoted. As I, I hope, my prayer for our church as we look into our future is that we would be the kind of community that we're not going to be accepted by everyone. Especially if we start living out being the family of God and how, how it teaches us to do that in Scripture. Jesus said that I am the corner, cornerstone and you are living stones. And the cornerstone was rejected. And if I was rejected, you will be rejected. So there is a part of this, when we start living this out, we will be persecuted in a certain way. I don't, I, persecution's a heavy word. I probably wouldn't say persecuted, but maybe marginalized, pushed to the fringes. But that's where the, the church of God thrives. The church, my, my, my invitation to you is let's be this kind of community. God, I thank you for the promise that you are turning us into this, these type of people. 
that you're doing that as we gather and sit under your word, as we worship you, as we repent. You're turning us into this kind of community. And I pray, God, that we would, we would repent and to, the, to the place where we're like, yes, God, do that in me. Form that sort of person in me to where I, I care more about other people. I'm deeply concerned and devoted to others, not simply myself. So, God, I pray that you would make us this kind of community, God. We cannot do it in our own flesh. We cannot do it through programs. We understand that, so we submit all of that to you. And we're like, God, Spirit of God, would you do that in our church? Spirit of God, would you make us one as you are one? Would you bring unity here? I pray, God, if there's any offense here that one person has done with another, that we would go and ask for forgiveness. God, get us over ourselves enough to where we see the beautiful thing that you are creating in our midst, a bride that's spotless, a people that are set apart for you. In Jesus' name, amen.